It's after midnight on July 20th, 1715. Just off the coast of Florida, a storm rages. Gale force winds rip across the Atlantic Ocean at 100 miles an hour. Violent, stinging rain batters the water, uniting the ocean and sky into a leviathan mass of blackness. Every so often, lightning flashes across the sky, briefly illuminating waves climbing 30, 40, then 50 feet high. Trapped among these waves is a fleet of 10 Spanish ships. In calmer weather, each of these vessels appear on the ocean as mighty, imposing structures. Enormous galleons that dwarf most other ships they pass. Their bellies filled with precious metals, jewels and silks, they lumber through the Atlantic, barely swaying even in the toughest of waters. But in the midst of this storm, they look like flotsam, battered about in the surf. On board the fleet's 471-ton flagship, Nuestra Señora de la Regla, sailors are desperately trying to cling to the water-soaked masts. Suddenly, the sails, which until this point have been uselessly flapping in the wind, rip off the yardarms, shredding in the process. The air is filled with what sounds like explosions as the ship's massive rigging comes crashing down onto the deck. Some seamen watch on in frozen horror as their shipmates are swept overboard, thrown into the mountainous waves. Others hurriedly, silently, whisper Latin prayers to themselves and hope that someone is listening. At the helm, the combined fleet's commander, Captain General Don Juan Esteban de Ubila, strains to catch sight of the nine other ships. The only sign of them are the dim, distant flashes of bobbing lanterns that briefly appear through the darkness and horizontal rain before disappearing again into the maelstrom. Ubila desperately clutches the ship's wheel. Not to steer the vessel, of course, there's no hope of that. He is simply holding on for dear life, watching helplessly as his ships are dragged inexorably toward the razor-sharp reefs and solid sandbars he knows are lying hidden just beneath the surf. Then, suddenly, the moment he's been praying would not come, arrives. The Nuestra Señora begins to shake violently as the sound of snapping wood and iron erupts in the air, momentarily drowning out the gale force winds. Her hull has been ripped away by a coral reef. The ship begins to take on torrents of water as all of her contents gush out like blood from a wound. Thousands upon thousands of gold and silver coins flicker and dance in the current as they make their way to the murky depths of the Atlantic. The Nuestra Señora follows soon after, plummeting beneath the waves before finally coming to rest 30 feet below the surface. Ubila, like any good captain, goes down with his ship. But as his body is consumed by the sea, he cannot imagine that his entire fleet all ten galleons will be destroyed. It's one of the greatest maritime disasters in history. But the sinking of this Spanish fleet will actually be remembered more for what happens next. The chain of events this one act of God will set off will lead to the dominance of pirates in the Caribbean. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. 
the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. We'll sail under the black flag alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. We reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Earlier in July of 1715, all ten of the doomed galleons stood lined on the deep-water docks of Port Havana, Cuba. It was an imposing sight. A great fleet of floating fortresses, each with thick signs made of nearly impenetrable tropical hardwood and rising some 45 feet into the air. Every inch of their 150-foot length was brimming with cannons. They comprised the Flotilla de Indias, known in English as the Spanish Treasure Fleet. This annual transatlantic convoy carries literally mountains of riches extracted from the New World back to Spain. Chests of gold and silver, pearls, gold bars and dust, Colombian emeralds, rare spices, fine silks, and precious Chinese porcelain. When Spain first began colonizing the Americas in the 16th century, Spain quickly became the wealthiest and most powerful country in Europe. And so the Spanish were known to be some of the wealthiest ships, but they were also practically impenetrable. And this is because they had these massive warships with a hundred cannons and nobody could quite match them. And no one was willing initially because it would just be absolutely devastating. The Flotilla de Indias was perhaps the single greatest symbol of the Spanish Empire's dominance in the Americas for the previous century. Just one of these great treasure galleons would be considered perhaps the greatest possible prize a pirate ship or sanctioned privateer could ever hope to capture at sea. But in almost 200 years of the Flotilla's existence, less than a handful had ever been lost to an enemy, or even to an act of God. Until now. The Spanish, for the first time since before the war, were gathering their treasure fleet. The King of Spain was desperate for cash and was insisting in exerting pressure on his subordinates to gather all of the treasure that had been accumulating, not just the treasure of Havana, but the treasure being looted from the Aztecs and the mountain of um, silver in Peru and the uh, transferred wealth that would be coming on the Manila galleons from the Spanish possessions in the Pacific. All of that treasure slowly gathering in Havana to be loaded onto the combined treasure fleet to go back to the Spanish king in 1715. But this was an enormous operation and there were various delays. The Manila galleons arrived a little late. There was a problem uh, for the llama trains carrying the silver over from the Andes, from Peru. And, uh, and delay after delay, the calendar was getting later. Six days before the wreck, on July 13, 1715, the Spanish treasure fleet left Havana. It was later in the year than Captain Ubila would have liked. Storms are known to unexpectedly rise on the seas this time of year, and hurricane season had just begun. Ubila was under a lot of pressure to deliver, and disappointing the Spanish crown 
was never an option. In any case, on the day they left, the wind was fair under cloudless Caribbean skies. So the ten ships, carrying the combined wealth of Spanish America, set sail. Most of her combined crew of 2,000 souls will never set foot on land again. At least, not alive anyway. The fleet started lumbering forward, flags flying and holds filled with a staggering amount of treasure estimated value of 1.75 million pounds at the time. And the ships began uh, making their way into the Florida Straits. And then the wind shifted. And then there was this strange humid air starting to accumulate. And as they proceeded their way up the Florida Straits between the Bahamas on one shoulder, infested by these uh, pirate gangs, and on their left shoulder was this expanse of the Florida coast. There were no settlement, no safe harbors, no refuge. On the evening of Friday, July 19th, 1715, as the sun finally set, Somewhere deep within the already storm-darkened skies, the winds roared into gales, and Don Esteban de Ubila realized the scale of their misfortune. It was a hurricane that was striking. Soon they were facing 100-mile-an-hour winds in the midst of the night, and one by one, these gigantic lumbering fortresses were being driven towards the Florida shores. And one by one, they crashed and were destroyed, some of them hitting the reef so hard it ripped the entire bottoms off, others destroyed and crashed by the waves. Half the crew was wiped out and didn't make it ashore. And those who did were were cowering without water or food supplies, you know, trying to take shelter from the uh, hurricane force winds in the shrubbery. And there you had somewhere on the bottoms in shallow water or scattered on the beach, this staggering amount of treasure, the mother load. The sun rises on a scene of apocalypse on the morning of July 20th. The beaches of what is today fondly known as Florida's treasure coast are littered with a thousand dead bodies and mangled pieces of the Spanish flotilla. Only one treasure galleon made it ashore in more or less one piece, the Urca de Lima, whose commander was able to run it aground in a river mouth. She's no longer seaworthy, but at least her treasure is more or less intact. For now. Less than half the men aboard the fleet made it to the beaches alive. Now terrified, they huddle together amongst the sand dunes. Many are nursing horrific wounds sustained during the wreck, Over the next few days, the majority of these wounded will die. Dozens more will succumb to dehydration. The only surviving senior officer, Admiral Don Francisco Salmon, takes charge of the dire situation. He commands the men to begin digging for fresh water and build makeshift shelters out of the wreckage. For food, they begin slaughtering the cats, dogs, and horses that made it ashore. Soon, they will have to rely only on palmetto tree berries to survive. A convoy of men is sent to St. Augustine, Florida, in one of the fleet's remaining dinghies. After a week, they make it to the harbor where they tell officials of the disaster. The Spaniards will try to keep news of the wreck from spreading, but it's only a matter of time until word gets out. When it does, Another storm will descend upon the now-ruined Spanish treasure fleet of robbers, thieves, and pirates like those now gathering in the Bahamas. 
Since 1713, Nassau has been growing, attracting smugglers, ex-privateers, prisoners, along with traders and sex workers. It's a beacon for all unsavory sorts and those who might profit from their illegal activities. By July 1715, more and more new arrivals stream into Nassau. They bring with them whispers of a great wreck just off the Florida coast and an incredible wealth now lying out in the open, ripe for the taking, just 246 miles away. Up and down the Americas, from Cape Cod in New England all the way down to the Spanish Main, word that the King of Spain's treasure was scattered on the beaches of Florida uh, was being telegraphed everywhere. And this caused a flood of would-be salvers and adventurers and wreckers streaming towards the Florida Straits to, as they said, fish upon the wrecks. In the 18th century, the sinking of the treasure fleet is a truly seismic event. For Spain, it's like the Wall Street crash. For everyone else, it's like the California gold rush. Like sharks smelling blood, anyone who could find a vessel descends on the ruined fleet. It's a feeding frenzy. Ports and harbors across the Caribbean are crazed with going wrecking, with every able-bodied mariner hoping to grab some Spanish gold for themselves. In the Bahamas, Nassau's proximity to the Florida Straits makes it the natural base for wreckers to launch their raids, as well as for the pirates who could, in turn, prey on the wreckers. After all, why risk diving the wrecks yourself or facing down the Spanish when you can just lay back and let someone else do the hard work before swooping in for the big score? If Nassau was growing before, the news of the wrecked fleet suddenly supercharges its expansion. Benjamin Hornigold carefully watches over the frenzied activity within his fledgling pirate republic. He knows that the wreck could either be a very good thing for his growing enterprise or bring unwanted attention. Hornigold does not appear to fish the wreck, busying himself instead with raiding merchant vessels. Up to this point, Hornigold has been operating under the guise of a privateer, restricting his raids to French and Spanish ships. During the War of Spanish Succession, privateers, essentially state-sanctioned pirates, were allowed to raid enemy ships with impunity. After the peace in 1713, however, these activities were suspended. But Hornigold has been continuing his own private war. In fact, he defiantly proclaims that he had never consented to the Articles of Peace with the French and Spaniards, though his crews would meddle not with the English nor the Dutch, their wartime allies. Bold, certainly, but hardly surprising. The Spanish had given him just the excuse he needed. When the war ended, the Spanish Coast Guard, the Guardas Costas, kept attacking English shipping. They were doing so under the argument that they were seizing contraband, but they defined contraband as any vessel which was carrying Spanish currency aboard. And the problem was that, you know, in the shortage of actual physical coins in that time period, in the Caribbean Basin, 
a Spanish minted currency was the was the standard currency of the era. You know, it was like uh, the dollar and the euro and the yen put together. That's what everyone traded in. So every vessel had Spanish currency on board, which the Spaniards knew. But this was the excuse they used to continually be grabbing English vessels coming in and out of Jamaica and you know dragging their crews off to prison in Havana. When your colleagues and friends are being hauled off by essentially Spanish raiders and privateers in time of peace, the idea that you were going to respect the law in the other direction was not strongly held out of Jamaica. So there started being a lot of freelance privateering beginning. This is like sort of payback. And and yes, like it's all unofficial, it's technically illegal, but the sentiment wasn't as simple as, you know, ho ho, we're all pirates now. You know, the step into piracy is it's often not just like that simple heel face turn, right? But in early November 1715, Hornigold seems to change tack and perhaps even goes against his own conscience. Hornigold seizes an English sloop, the Mary, just off the coast of Cuba, constituting his first act of piracy against his own nation. British authorities might overlook a few retaliatory raids on Spanish vessels, but attacking English ships is different. Exactly why Hornigold decides to suddenly change course is unknown. Most likely he is under considerable pressure from his crew to secure spoils. Otherwise, he wouldn't risk drawing unnecessary attention to himself by angering the British Empire. Whatever his reasoning, by attacking an English ship, Benjamin Hornigold has crossed a definitive line. He has now officially gone from privateer to pirate. The Mary is a major step up for Hornigold and the Flying Gang. It's a 35-ton sloop capable of accommodating 140 men and six cannons. A formidable war vessel. Hornigold's power in Nassau is indisputable. For now. Little does he know, there is another power rising in the Caribbean. A man who will challenge Hornigold's dominance. Captain Henry Jennings. It's not just the lowlives and criminals of New Providence who are intrigued at the prospect of Spanish gold. The lure of the wreck is also setting Britain's American colonies chattering. And there are plenty of supposedly law-abiding folk were just as keen as the pirates to get a cut. Sailors begin abandoning their ships at an alarming rate to go wrecking. There are even a few colonial governors aching to get in on the action. Most of all, Governor Archibald Hamilton of Jamaica, Britain's Caribbean jewel, the seat of her maritime power. After failing to persuade Captain Davis of the warship HMS Jamaica to loot the wrecks and share the proceeds with him, he seeks alternative avenues. Hamilton, funnily enough, has his own private navy to call upon. He has assembled a fleet of privateers. The official reason given for building this small armada is the island's protection. We had only one man of war and one sloop of war left on Jamaica's station, both foul, unfit to go after those nimble vessels which infested us, Hamilton wrote to the Crown. Since those ships were set to head back for Britain, Hamilton argued that he had no choice but to assemble his own fleet to defend the island's shipping against Spanish privateers. 
Governor Hamilton selects Captain Henry Jennings to lead a squadron of ships to the Florida wrecks. Jennings is a highly respected man throughout the Caribbean, hailing from an affluent family in Bermuda, where they own a grand estate. He also has property in Jamaica, which earns him 400 pounds a year. Captain Jennings stands out amongst common mariners. He's highly educated, refined, and versed in the etiquette and manners of high society. But beneath his sophisticated exterior lies a battle-hardened wartime privateer. Throughout the War of Spanish Succession, he ruthlessly attacked every Spanish ship that was unlucky enough to cross his path. Since the war ended, he's missed the thrill of the chase, which is why he jumps at Governor Hamilton's proposal. Jennings immediately starts assembling a crew for the expedition, most of whom are rather unsavory characters. A lot of people became privateers were former pirates. And this is because pirates were offered a pardon um, if they could join a privateering ship, meaning you'll be forgiven of all your crimes if you work for us during the War of Spanish Succession. You can keep 80% of the loot. And a lot of pirates kind of jumped at it because they're like, we can keep doing what we're doing and we don't have to worry about getting hanged for it. Jennings drew his crew from these battle-scarred ex-privateers possibly even a former pirate or two. One such man might have been a hot-headed, fearsome young sailor called Charles Vane, a man who would later be hanged to death on these very same Jamaican docks after defending the Pirate Republic on Nassau to his last. In December of 1715, under Governor Hamilton's commission, Jennings and his crew sail out of Bluefields, Jamaica on the 40-ton sloop Bathsheba a heavily armed warship with eight guns, capable of carrying 80 men. Jennings is accompanied by another privateer, John Wills, whose eagle carries 100 men along with 12 guns. This is serious firepower, capable of dealing with anything they're likely to encounter from pirates or Spanish coast guards. But there is a much greater risk to this mission than a few armed ships. You see, it's one thing for pirates and wreckers to go after the sunken Spanish treasure. But for a royal governor like Hamilton, it's a somewhat sensitive political issue. A grey area of international law. But the other thing going on is that even though the war is over, there's, there's a lot of active tension in the Caribbean between Spanish and English shipping. But like the, the problem is that the Garda Costa is making it very difficult for English trade to go on in the Caribbean. And some of this is because, at least according to the Spanish Empire, it's not legitimate trade. And this all comes to a head with the wreck, right? Because there's a lot of cultural differences over who's even entitled to be trying to recover the wreck of the flotilla. And the Spanish government declared, even though the ships had like sunk to the bottom of the ocean, it was all still Spanish. Nobody else was going to accept that because wrecking culture goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and that's not how it works. You can declare whatever you want, and you can have European governments back that up, but for the people that are local, it's like, pff, no. By sending Jennings to the wreck in an official capacity, Governor Hamilton risks retaliation from the Spanish. But what orders is Jennings actually given? Officially, his commission is to execute all manner of acts of hostility against pirates, 
a definition which might stretch to cover Spanish privateers and merchant ships, which presumably at the site of the wrecks might well be loaded with Spanish riches, making a tidy profit for the privateers and the governor as their backer. But the tacit understanding is he should take whatever actions he can to recover the treasure. Jennings sails out and he has a letter of Mark from Hamilton. He's been given a privateering commission to go and arrest shipping and his targets are supposed to be ostensibly naval targets, but I think it's understood pretty early on that he's going to head for the wreck and, and see like what they can get. But the thing is, it all becomes very murky, right? Because, you know, the privateers are not supposed to be diving. They're not supposed to be trying to recover the money that way. If it's being shipped back, they can try to intercept it. And that's, at least from Hamilton's side, perfectly legitimate. By the time Jennings begins his journey to the site of the wreck, the Spanish have already recovered most of the treasure that could be easily retrieved from the ocean. Under the surveillance of Admiral Francisco Salmon, they've built a fortified camp to oversee the salvaging operation and stave off wreckers and pirates. For over six months now, a massive diving operation has been underway. Diving in the 18th century is extremely dangerous. The mortality rate is high. As a result, the vast majority of divers are drawn from Spain's population of enslaved peoples. To reach the treasure some 20 to 50 feet below the surface, the diver holds a large rock and sinks to the bottom. They then grab as many coins and other small objects as possible. While there, they also scan for larger items like chests, cannons, or boxes. Once they resurface, the divers are searched before being sent down again with ropes or chains to attach to the larger objects so that they can be hoisted up. In deeper waters, the enslaved divers are sent down with a large convex device called the diving bell, which traps air. When they run out of breath, they can stick their head inside the bell to breathe, but they must be careful to exhale completely before surfacing. If they fail to do so, their lungs might rupture, resulting in a horrifically painful death. Another risk is staying down for too long. Extended periods in deep water causes dangerous levels of nitrogen to build up in the blood. Once on the surface, the nitrogen bubbles, causing nerve damage, paralysis, and more often than not, death. Though at least a third of the enslaved divers die, Admiral Salmon is happy. They were able to recover over four million pesos worth of the treasure most of which has already been sent to Havana. Just 350,000 pieces of eight remain. A small fortune, sure, but nothing compared to the vast amount that's already under lock and key, ready to be sent back to Spain. For safekeeping, Salmon has the remaining pieces of eight placed in a chest and buried within the main camp. By Christmas, it seems that he can finally begin to put his nightmare behind him. The worst is surely over and soon he will leave this godforsaken spit of sand, return home to Spain, and never look back. Little does he know, but at this very moment, two heavily armed privateering vessels are silently making their way up the coast, headed straight for him and his buried treasure. It's Christmas morning, 1715. 
Captain Henry Jennings stands at the helm of the Bathsheba, eyes straining across the glistening ocean waters. The privateers have made it to the Key of Biscayne, an island at the entrance of the Florida Straits. For days, they've searched for signs of the Spanish wreck, but so far have found nothing. Around eight o'clock in the morning, a small sailing launch begins to approach. Jennings pulls out his spyglass. It's an unarmed Spanish vessel. The Bathsheba and the Eagle intercept it with ease. Turns out, it's a Spanish mailboat on its way from St. Augustine to Havana. Immediately, Jennings and his crew begin interrogating the captain, a 46-year-old man named Pedro de la Vega, on the whereabouts of the wreck. Vega is in no position to resist. He's outgunned and outmanned. He tells them everything. Vega knows exactly where the wreck is. In fact, he'd been there just a few days ago. Jennings orders the shaken Spaniard to take him and his men there. All three ships begin making their way along the shore. The privateering vessels raise Spanish flags to avoid detection. The next morning, they begin to see signs of the wreck. A shattered hull submerged beneath the shallow waters off the St. Lucie Inlet. Splintered wood scattered across the beaches, some of which has been used to form crude crosses marking the shallow graves of the dead. Continuing north, they cruise past the wreck of the Urca de Lima, still resting within the mouth of the river where she ran aground. It's a surreal sight, a mighty treasure galleon lying empty and defenseless on shore. Of course, she's already been fully salvaged. The privateers won't waste time checking. No, Jennings is now armed with the intelligence from the Spanish mailboat. He's aware that to get the real treasure, they'll need to go ashore and fight their way through the Spanish encampments. As night falls on December 26th, fires become visible from shore. They've reached their destination. Jennings spies two camps some six miles apart, amidst a palm grove planted by Florida's native population. Luckily, it appears that they're not heavily armed. He and his men should be able to take them with ease. As the sloops get closer, Jennings orders them to anchor and douse their lamps. They now sit, invisible in the blackness of the night, waiting for dawn, the best time to attack. He selects 150 men and divides them into three heavily armed companies. Around two in the morning, the privateers begin silently rowing to shore under the cover of darkness. As the sun begins to creep over the horizon, they reach land. The Spaniards, rubbing the sleep from their eyes, awake to the sound of the fearsome ratatat of a marching drum. All hell breaks loose. Panic quickly spreads throughout the camp. They've staved off wreckers and pirates, but the drums mean that real soldiers are on their way. Dozens of men run from their tents and flee into the shelter of the palm grove. Some look desperately to the sand embankment they built to defend against attacks, but as the privateers approach, they know that there is no hope of fighting them off. They're almost triple the Spaniards in number, and their muskets will easily beat the few cannons the camp has at their disposal. Admiral Salmon watches as the soldiers approach. They're flying the British flag. But the war is over. What are they doing here? 
He knows the situation is hopeless. The Admiral picks up a white flag of surrender and begins walking towards the invaders alone. Salmon and Jennings are now face to face. The Spaniard looks the privateer in the eye and in as calm a voice as he can muster asks, Is this war? No, replies Jennings. We came to fish the wreck to claim the mountains of wealth. Salmon is taken aback. There's nothing for you here. The wrecks belong to His Catholic Majesty King Philip V. The Admiral can tell that Jennings is unmoved. He offers him 25,000 pieces of eight to leave peacefully, but the privateer knows well that Salmon is in no position to bargain. Jennings balks at the offer and orders him to lead them to the buried treasure. Salmon pleads with him but knows there is no use. He watches on in dismay as Jennings and his men unearth the Spanish treasure they have so painstakingly plucked from the ocean floor. The privateers load the chests filled with all 325,000 silver pieces of eight into the launch. They also steal four bronze swivel guns and destroy three of the Spanish cannons before leaving. The Bathsheba and the Eagle now turn their sails southeast towards the nearest islands nominally under British control, the Bahamas. Jennings is surely aware of the growing nest of pirates within the island chain. Perhaps he is simply fulfilling the objective of his commission from Governor Hamilton to execute all manner of acts of hostility against pirates. Or perhaps thrilled by the success of the raid and knowing that this will be one of the last letters of mark he receives, Jennings hears the siren song of piracy calling to him in the distance. Around the same time as the Jennings raid, in December 1715, Benjamin Hornigold captures a Spanish sloop of war. He renames it the Benjamin after himself and proudly sails it into Nassau Harbor on New Year's Day 1716. They weren't operating out of canoes anymore. They were operating out of uh, substantial ocean-going sloops like the Benjamin, which had, uh, you know, cannon, were swift, could get away from other vessels, but also had the firepower to force most ordinary merchant shipping in the Straits of Florida and in the Greater Antilles to stand down and surrender, which is exactly what they wanted. The massive warship is capable of carrying 200 men, along with a wide array of weapons. It's a major victory for Hornigold, whose power in Nassau swells to even greater heights. Thomas Walker, a former judge and the last remnant of imperial authority, is now effectively out of the picture. He finally realizes the severity of the situation. With more pirate ships sailing into the harbor every day, there can be no denying that a new age has dawned. With so many winds under his belt, Hornigold must feel unstoppable. He's the captain of a growing army of pirates and soon his dominance in the Caribbean will be uncontested. But all that changes when just a few days later, Captain Henry Jennings and his privateering fleet sail into Nassau. Henry Jennings arrives and starts using Nassau as a base. He considers himself to be a cut above the early pirates who he encountered there like Benjamin Hornigold because he arrives in Nassau holding a legitimate privateering commission issued by the most important governor in the English Americas. And so, you know, he's 
legitimate. He's already a wealthy established merchant. He's doing privateering under official auspices. And so he considers himself apart and above these freelance pirate privateer types he encounters in NASA, which creates the initial tension. His arrogance, and if you will, sort of a class and status conflict is already at work, even in the early, early days of the pirate republic. Just after he arrives, Jennings begins throwing his weight around. With two sloops of war and 200 armed men, his resources are nearly double to that of Hornigold. The flying gang don't stand a chance. Jennings' first order of business is to seize one of Hornigold's prizes, a small Spanish trading sloop. Why he does this is unknown. Jennings could be trying to fulfill his commission as a pirate hunter, making up for his excesses during the raid. Some speculate that bad blood may have existed between Hornigold and Jennings from their privateering days. In any case, it has the desired effect. Hornigold is humiliated. He watches, fuming, as Jennings' men board his ship, making themselves comfortable as they divide spoils that he could only dream of obtaining. 325,000 pieces of eight. That makes every raid he's conducted look small time. For the next few days, Jennings and his crew haunt the Nassau taverns, regaling everyone within earshot of their heroic raid. The message is clear. There's a contender to Hornigold's throne. A fearsome rivalry is about to erupt within the Pirate Republic. Next week on Real Pirates. Captain Henry Jennings fears retribution from his raid on the Spanish wrecks, but that doesn't stop him from continuing his foray into piracy. He partners up with a pirate new to the scene, Sam Bellamy, who in future years will become known as one of the most feared captains in the Seven Seas. Together they conduct a daring raid on a French merchant ship, but Jennings quickly finds out the hard way. Never trust a pirate. That's next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast. Produced and written by McAllister Bexon and Addison Nugent. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Matthias Torres Sole and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. 